trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program for people who are determined to think as clearly and independently as possible. Understanding that we live in a time of almost universal deceit when it comes to most of the mass media organs out there. And understanding that even the independent voices, uh, like myself, you can't just take on face value everything that we're saying. You've got to be willing to do your homework. You've got to be willing to vet your sources. But most importantly, you have to be willing to accept responsibility for your own worldview. So I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to encourage you to think clearly and independently, even if that means disagreeing with me, which you're free to do. Got some great sponsors who make this possible on a daily basis. They include HSLAmmo.com, also MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and Garage Door Pros. So I want to start with a little uh, story about uh, uh, just, just a really snide comment from a journalist in, in Idaho. And it has to do with a 69-year-old woman. She's a cancer patient, but she was present at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And she actually went inside the Capitol, presumably waved in along with many others by police officers who finally just took the barriers back and opened up the doors and let people come in and wander around. And I believe she was charged with, uh, you know, being present in a place where she didn't have uh, have permission or parading in uh, in a government facility or something like that. <clears throat> Nonetheless, she has been found guilty, sentenced to, I don't remember how long, 60 days in, in prison, like legit prison. And, you know, you can disagree with what, uh, what the protesters did on January 6th. The ones who did violent things, the ones who broke things and, and actually, uh, you know, clashed with police. Yeah, I think they were probably in the wrong. But there were a lot of people like this. 69-year-old cancer patient who uh, went, who were there because they were very concerned about what they perceived as, as an election being stolen right out from under the American people. Now, right, wrong, or indifferent, they have a right to be concerned about that. It's just so curious to see the, the huge spectacle the January 6th committee is making about this, you know, this is the worst attack on American democracy in, in our lifetimes. And oh my goodness, the melodrama is just dripping from everything they say. But to, to illustrate the mindset of just, just how small a soul a person must have to have in order to, to rejoice, to see people like this, this 69-year-old woman sent to prison, it's only for 60 days, but uh, this, this uh, journalist, I think, uh, accurately reflecting the, the smug, well, <laughs> don't we have everything going for us, you know, mindset that, that pervades journalism today, tells this cancer patient, hey, why don't you just go quietly into that, uh, go gently into that uh, dark night? You did the crime. You admitted to it. So stop acting like you're a victim here and just go. Now, granted... He's not doing this in his role. He's not actually doing this in a news story. But in his news story, he sat down for an interview with this woman and, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, 
snidely, snarkily de- declares her, well, she, she is what she calls an independent journalist, meaning she takes lots of video and posts it to social media. And yet I would wager that there are independent journalists out there who do exactly that and still get the story right more often than some of these so-called accepted or cre- accredited journalists. But the, here's, the, here's the kicker. I don't know that what she did was uh, was worthy of a two-month prison sentence. Frankly, for some people, you know, they're saying, well, she probably got off lucky. I mean, some people have been held for nearly two years now without so much as a trial. Yeah, sometimes the, the process is as much the punishment. But look at this headline. FBI infiltrated January 6th crowds reported riot suspects were innocent, according to leaked Department of Justice documents. Okay, the truth eventually starts to come out. I've got a couple of stories that I've linked to in today's show notes that help to to blow the lid off this January 6th debacle. And I have have wondered all along, I've, I've had the opinion all along that it's very possible the feds were themselves instrumental in setting in motion the events of January 6th. So I've got this article from Frank Bergman. This is from slaynews.com that says those leaked DOJ documents are now casting serious doubt on the insurrection narrative. Apparently, uh, there was a whistleblower who stepped forward and leaked documents to, I think it was to Gateway Pundit. These explosive documents reveal the FBI was running operations on January 6th. They had undercover agents planted months before the events ever took place. Which, again, if you have followed what the FBI has been doing over the years, uh, my, my proximity to Bundy Ranch and to some of the events uh, involving the Malheur Wildlife Refuge, that, that makes sense because it was seen in both of those instances as well as other instances. This is interesting, though. According to the highly sensitive, they're marked highly sensitive DOJ files, the undercover FBI agents noted in their reports that the suspect arrested, suspects rather arrested for rioting were in fact innocent. You catch that? The agents who were undercover said in their reports, yeah, these, these suspects here were innocent. Now, the Gateway Pundit uh, has uh, reportedly possession of this treasure trove of documents and text messages. And they contain, they contain incredible exculpatory evidence proving the Justice Department was aware that a group of, of indicted Proud Boys were innocent, but they're prosecuting them anyway. Now, I just want to ask you, why would they do that? And it's, you know, the, the answer is pretty easy to come to because we're trying to send a message. We're trying to, we're trying to chill any semblance of dissent. And, of course, they're also trying to head off a uh, potential uh, 2024 run by Donald Trump, presumably by trying to come up with some sort of criminal charges. If we can just get his orange behind in jail, well, we should be able to stop him. Well, there's a link here in this story that uh, you can access the entire dump of documents. I've not had a chance to go through all of them, but it's, it's pretty telling. These files include hundreds of pages of transcripts of audio recorded interviews with an assisting U.S. attorney, FBI agents, and their confidential human source. Now, that CHS infiltrated the Kansas City Proud Boy group over a year and a half before the January 6th event and then kept the FBI informed on the group's activity. 
A source familiar with the FBI informant has identified him as James Aaron Knowles. According to the source, Knowles has gained the group, had gained the group's total trust and was included in all group communications. But here are some of the things that he says about this uh, Kansas City Proud Boy group that he was infiltrating. Quote, they were not involved in, nor did they inspire the breaking of barriers at the Capitol building. Here's another quote. CHS describes the scene as the crowd doing it as a herd mentality and that it was not organized. The crowd was shouting, stop the vote, as they made their way to the Capitol building. But there were no overt threats of violence made at that time. And the informant also testifies that the Proud Boys planned to come to Washington, D.C. to risk their own safety to protect average Trump supporters from Antifa attacks. They said the group wanted MAGA folk to enjoy the day and get back to their hotels early. Now, many of those arrested on that day, of course, have been arrested, despite the FBI informant protesting their innocence. Isn't that something? There's a lot more to this, but again, I'm going to give you the chance to check this out for yourself. I've got two different stories that I've linked in today's show notes that will give you plenty of reading material to consider. You don't have to agree with me on this. You may be absolutely convinced, oh, no, no, those January 6th people were, in fact, insurrectionists. And every one of them are getting what they deserved. But for those of us who still had questions about the organized fashion in which those who did breach the barriers and break into the Capitol seemed to be working together, the coordinated effort that they were showing, suddenly it makes a lot more sense. Because at least now we can say with some confidence, well, it looks like the feds did have people in place months before the events of that day And so it's very possible that they had people who were in there acting as provocateurs and perhaps encouraging people to do things they shouldn't. Again, Ray Epps. Anybody who's seen video of Ray Epps the night before telling people, what we've got to do tomorrow is we've got to go to the Capitol and we've got to go inside the Capitol. That's where our troubles are. And yet the federal government and its prosecutors, well, they really have no interest in Ray Epps. Why, yes, we did talk to him, but uh, no, he's definitely not a suspect. I don't know what to say. He was front and center. Even at the Capitol, he was front and center in getting the crowd all ginned up. Something's fishy here, my friend. And I get the impression that somebody's not telling us the the truth. January 6th committee? (laughs) I'm looking in your direction. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to give a shout out here to Garage Door Pros. They do service and repair, installs, maintenance, whether it's for your home, whether it's for a business. They do garage doors, and that's a very important thing, especially if you uh, live in the southern Utah heat. This is where they operate. Anybody in Cedar City, St. George, Mesquite, Colorado City, I know there's a lot of growth, a lot of building going on there. Contact Garage Door Pros. You can go to their website, garagedoorproservices.com. I actually have a link in my show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. But reach out to them. Let them be the ones to take care of you with years of experience, on-time service, doors built to last. 
You can call 435-525-2773 or click online to book an appointment with them today. So you're ready for some good news. Would you like to hear something that could actually make you smile? Let me share with you a story that I thought was, was especially good. And we need, we need some good news every so often. This is the story about a family's business success. And it's just a great illustration of, of uh, how we can better live our lives and how we can better direct our efforts than simply, you know, chanting this political slogan or electing this politician. This is where direct action really can make a difference. A Twitter user by the name of Kevin Lee posted this article, and I've, I've included a thread unroll. He says, a decade ago, one of my best friends took over his family's electrical business and worked six days a week to grow the company. He recently achieved a generational wealth level exit. Now, he told me a story once that helped me understand how his family achieved such success. When they started the business, they used their family savings to lease warehouse space where they stored electrical supply inventory. They would then go around the city and service small contracts, setting up electrical power supply and lighting to small businesses. After a few starting years of hard work, they expanded their lease and they obtained more warehouse space to grow inventory and their ability to service more contracts. After adding in extra inventory... He says, my friend's father realized there was still a bit of space available. Now, his mother wanted to sublease the extra space to another tenant for some extra income. That makes sense. But his dad had another idea. Over their starting years, they sometimes subcontracted some of the labor for their electrical installation contracts to hardworking immigrant workers. And these immigrant workers often asked if they could bring family members or friends to help out on these contract projects, but most of them didn't have the requisite skill sets. So he says, my friend's father saw how many of these people were just trying to make a living and survive in America. Their struggle reminded him of his own immigration to the U.S. with his wife from Southeast Asia and how they had to survive with no financial or social capital. So he took that extra warehouse space and converted it into a tiny classroom with just a few desks and chairs. And then he hired one of the general contractors the family business often worked with to teach. And from that point on, every Saturday morning for four hours, he made that warehouse classroom free for any immigrant worker to learn electrical engineering. Now, the classroom attendance grew by word of mouth Immigrant workers invited family members and friends, and everybody got a free education. Most of these classroom students went on to find electrical jobs that brought life-changing income to their families. A few students asked if they could work for my friend's family business, and, when they, and whenever they could afford to, they hired and they paid great wages. But he says jobs at my friend's company were limited, so many of the students went to work for competitor electrical companies. In other words, his friend's dad was literally funding the education of workers for his competitors. But he did it anyway, because he knew this was the right thing to do, to pay those opportunities forward and to help other people. So a few years after this small warehouse classroom had been running, their electrical business had grown, and one month they decided they were going to try to win a bid to supply all the electrical lights for the city's largest transportation center. Now, this would be a game-changing, multi-year, seven-figure city contract that was the most revenue they would ever have the chance to compete for. 
In fact, winning this bid would transform their, transform their small business because it would qualify them to apply for future multi-year city building contracts. Now, they spent months preparing submission materials. They submitted them, but they never heard back. And then a few months later, he says, my friend and his father were cleaning up their warehouse after work hours when a young man walked into the entrance. And he says, this young man came up to my friend's father and said, do you remember me? Now, he says, my friend's father was a bit embarrassed as he dealt with hundreds of customers a year, and he admitted he didn't remember the face. So the young man then told him that years ago, he had no education and struggled to make ends meet. But then he heard about a classroom where he could learn electrical engineering for free every Saturday. So he ended up taking that class, hosted and paid for by my friend's family, every weekend until he had enough education to strike out for a job. And he explained that he ended up finding a job at the city's largest transportation center. Thanks to his education and his great attitude, he kept getting promoted over several years. And as he concluded his story, he told my friend and my friend's father that now he was the buyer in charge of selecting the next vendor for the transportation center's contract. You can probably see where this is going. They won that multi-year contract and it fundamentally changed their family business for the better. He says, when my friend's family finally exited their business, word got out to the entire industry. And they'd done so much good for their community over their decades of founding the business that dozens of business owners, general contractors, students of that class, and founders and CEOs of competitors came by their warehouse to pay their respect to the family. Now, Kevin Lee says, I never forgot that story. I'm sure it's one of many examples of how my friend's family paid it forward over the years. And here's the thing. They never expected anything to come out of that classroom, and it was created selflessly. But he says, I'm glad so much good came out of it because they deserve it. And he concludes by saying, in your journey to the top, you must remember to help those with less opportunity and resources along the way. Not because you should expect anything to come back to you, but because... It's the right thing to do. Now, I don't know about you, but that one, I can't help but smile and feel some warm fuzzies as I read that story. Number one, I, I really do love to see people succeed. I think that that's, that's a greatly underlooked or overlooked pl uh, pleasure. You know, some people get very competitive. When someone else succeeds, they've got this idea, you, you can only succeed if somehow I'm losing. I don't feel that way. I'm happy to see people succeed. But I'm also happy when I see people do something that really isn't of great benefit to them. I mean, they didn't start teaching these, these people who wanted to learn electrical engineering. <laughs> they didn't do that as a grand strategy where years later, this is going to secure us this incredible, you know, seven-figure contract. They just did it because they perceived there were people who needed help and they were willing to step up and provide that help and it's just, I don't know, do you believe in karma? If so, I think we can say karma's exact because it came back to them in all the right ways. And I'm sure there's some lessons that you and I could draw from this as well. You know, there's a lot going on around us right now that's disturbing, that's upsetting, that's alarming, <laughs> to put it mildly. How much better off might we be to focus on looking for the people around us who need some help, some encouragement, a step up 
to get to where they're trying to go. I can tell you this. If you see that opportunity, if you take the opportunity to help them, if you focus on helping other people as opposed to simply complaining about uh, whatever's going on around you, it brings peace and it brings purpose into your life. And right now, <clears throat> I think that's something that all of us could use. Well, I think it's something all of us could use in, in much more abundance. So for what it's worth, I share this story with you. There's a link in the show notes to that uh, Twitter thread, Unroll. If you want to share it with some friends, if you're asked to speak somewhere, that might be a good story to share. It's also a good reminder that there is some good news going on, regardless of what the headlines may be saying at the moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. I know I beat this drum often, but uh, I'm telling you, there is nothing that brings a sense of peace of mind and at least a sense of calm in the face of crazy times as uh, knowing that you have some of the necessary items on hand to where you could weather a storm without some kind of outside assistance. So I would encourage you, if you, uh, if you resonate with the idea of self-reliance and standing on your own two feet, click on the link I provide in my show notes lifesavingfood.com. Take a look at what they have to offer and see if there are some things that you might be able to access there that could provide that peace of mind and that sense of confidence as you move toward the future. Well, um, fear. The COVID fear peddlers are starting up again. I don't know if you've seen, but yeah, there's, there's, uh, now they've even started naming all the various mutations. Okay. It's not just enough of a new variant, but Oh, we gotta we gotta tell you the BA five uh, variant now is is spreading. It's much more contagious, and just trying desperately to keep that fear alive. And I'm not going to pretend that you know, hey, there's no risk at all, man. But I think by now most of us have had a chance to to put the risk into some kind of perspective. And the fact of the matter is, most people, especially if you're under 80 years of age and you don't have a bunch of comorbidities. You're likely pretty safe. It's it's nice that it's actually kind of rare to see people out and about wearing masks or, you know, obsessing over six-foot distancing or we don't see any more of those silly one-way arrows up and down the aisles of the grocery store. Boy, saved a lot of lives with that one. But uh, school mask mandates, this seems to be the real battlefield because this is where the most irrational demands are being made. Kids are the least likely source of COVID infection, and yet we're expected to treat them like little disease vectors and keep them masked at all times. Now, just my opinion is the mask mandates in schools really have nothing to do with slowing the spread of this particular virus. I think it's already gone endemic. I think most people have some degree of natural immunity. I think those masks are part and parcel of people who want to be in control, who need to to see a visible tangible reminder of the fact that yes we are in control and that's why i think they want to keep them on those young faces got an article here from john miltibor this was published on uh, intellectualtakeout.org more evidence that school mask mandates are not effective john miltibor says a growing body of scientific evidence suggests that mask mandates did little to nothing 
to curb the spread of COVID-19. In fact, he says the latest research further undermines the controversial policy. A new study analyzing a pair of schools in Fargo, North Dakota, one of which had a mask mandate in the fall of in place in the fall of 2021 to 2022 academic year, and one that did not, provides more evidence that mask mandates are ineffective public policy. Researchers at the University of Southern California and University of California Davis concluded, quote, our findings contribute to a growing body of literature which suggests School-based mask mandates have limited to no impact on the case rates of COVID-19 among K-12 through students. End quote. Now, John Miltimore says, <clears throat> The findings, which have not yet been peer-reviewed, were published on July 1st in a preprint paper on Research Square. Supporters of mask mandates will say, Well, one preprint study is hardly conclusive proof that mask mandates have been ineffective during the pandemic. And he says they'd be right. Unfortunately, The latest research represents just one spoke in the wheel, to borrow an expression from a farmer he knows. An abundance of research shows mask mandates in schools have been ineffective policy. And that includes a robust Centers for Disease Control and Prevention study from 2020 analyzing some 90,000 students in 169 Georgia elementary schools in November and December. Now, the 21% lower incidence in schools that required mask use among students was not statistically significant compared with schools where mask use was optional. This is what the CDC admitted in its own report. Now, John Miltimore says, if you hadn't heard that the CDC's own research showed no statistically significant difference in schools that had mask mandates in place and those that did not, well, you could be forgiven because the CDC buried the finding choosing not to include it in the summary of the report, a practice scientists describe as file-drawing. That a uh, masking requirement of students failed to show independent benefit is a finding of consequence and of great interest. That's according to Vinay Prasad, an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco's Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. Prasad told The New Yorker last year it should have been included in the summary. Now, the CDC never explained why it opted not to include the finding in its summary, but one obvious theory is that the CDC simply didn't wish to highlight the fact that its own scientific research found its controversial policy was ineffective. So, despite its best efforts, however, evidence continues to mount suggesting that mask mandates are not effective at reducing the spread of COVID. Writing in the New York Times on May 31st, Pulitzer Prize-winning writer David Leonhart said that copious amounts of evidence show mask mandates appear to have little to no correlation with the spread of COVID. Here's a quote from, from Leonhart. He says, in U.S. cities where mask use has been more common, COVID has spread at a rate similar as in mask resistant cities. Mask mandates in schools also seem to have done little to reduce the spread. Hong Kong, despite almost universal mask wearing, recently endured one of the world's worst COVID outbreaks. Advocates of mandates sometimes argue that they do have a big effect, even if it's not evident in the population-wide data, because of how many other factors are at play. But this argument seems unpersuasive. End quote. So John Miltimore says, look, perhaps the, ma- the masks that people wear are of low quality. Maybe they're being worn improperly. Maybe people in mandated settings remove facial coverings frequently. 
Perhaps the study suggesting masks are effective at virus control are either flawed or incomplete. Whatever the reason, there is an emerging scientific consensus that mask mandates have not been effective in curbing the spread of COVID. Now, he says, decades from now, scientists will likely still be exploring why mask mandates were so ineffective during the great coronavirus pandemic. Theories we can't even imagine today will be offered, discussed, and debated. One thesis that will likely not be explored is the idea that the means were all wrong. The great economist Ludwig von Mises once observed the state is fundamentally an organ of coercion, of force. The worship of the state is the worship of force, Mises said. Force, we often forget, isn't just an immoral way to organize society. It's often ineffective. In his 1969 book, Let Freedom Reign, Foundation for Economic Education's founder, Leonard Reed, argued the means we choose matter much more than the ends we seek. Here's how Reed put it. Ends, goals, aims are but the hope for things to come, not reality, from which may safely be taken the standards for right conduct. Many of the most monstrous deeds in human history have been perpetrated in the name of doing good. In pursuit of some noble goal, they illustrate the fallacy that the end justifies the means. Examine carefully the means employed, judging them in terms of right and wrong, and the end will take care of itself. Now, John Miltimore says the ends planners sought, which was less community spread, that was noble. But the means they used to achieve those ends, government force, were not now, if you don't believe mask mandates constitute force, review the videos of the Alabama woman body slammed by a police officer or the New York woman thrown to the ground by NYPD officers. Both conflicts began over violations of mask protocols. Now, whether the lackluster results of mask mandates stem from their rotten means, that's debatable, of course. But John Miltimore says one person at least would not have been surprised by the sterile results, and that would be Leonard Reed. Reed understood that means matter more than the ends. The bloom pre-exists in the seed. This is why Americans would do well to remember that force is a dangerous foundation for a society, even if one's ends are pure, and that it's not too late to reimagine a world based on voluntary action. I really love John Miltimore's way with words here, and I think he's right on the money. So as you hear the fear peddlers pumping up that fear, trying to get people, you know, agitated and, well, we got to lock it down again. we got to make sure we've got mask mandates on every form of public transportation and so forth. Just remember, there are people who are trying to parlay this into power, personal power for them, for their group, for their, their political party, whatever it may be. And I'm going to encourage you, think hard before you give your consent and go along with it. I think I agree with Alan Stevo, who says, look, once you've made up your mind that they have no right to force you to do something like this, don't just, you know, go along to get along. Well, you know, the dentist said I needed to have a mask to come into the office. I still think Alan Stevo had the best approach with sometimes you just have to look him right in the eye and as calmly but firmly as possible say, I will not be wearing a mask today. Now, there's risk. You might be thrown out. They might tell you, you have to leave then. I would say, walk away then. Count yourself lucky that you uh, are able to avoid having to do business with people who would use coercion to get you to do stuff. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Want to give a shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. I have the deepest respect for my friend Spencer Worthington. Not only is he the founder of HSLAmmo.com, he's just an all-around good guy. Yes, based on that uh, that qualification alone, I would say you should do business with him because he's a dang good guy. He also makes very high-quality new and remanufactured ammunition, and uh, that to ammunition can be the key to having a great time at the shooting range or perhaps uh, honing your skill at arms. Always a good thing to have. It could also be a great store of value for those who are looking for some tangible, barterable good in anticipation that if economic hard times come, that's something that will always hold value, something you can trade or you can sell, and it's it, people will always want it. Just a little something to think about. HSLAmmo.com. So I just want to briefly touch on this article that I found on the Brownstone Institute's website, brownstone.org. Fear has become so much of the fuel of our thoughts and actions. And there's this great article by Molly Kingsley and Liz Cole about the generation of children raised by fear. They talk about how humans are hardwired to fear infectious diseases, but with such uncharacteristic effectiveness, did government turbocharge fear to ensure compliance with its restrictions and silence opponents that the nation not only turned in on itself, but also on its children. And they give some examples here that, man, I don't know if you remember these, but I remember seeing some of these stories come across the news headlines and, you know, parents uh, locking their young in their room for days on ends, padlocking playgrounds to stop them from and stopping them from seeing grandparents and friends. We tossed their education to one side in the process, degrading it to an extent that without drastic remedial action, they're not likely to recover from it. Here's an example of a woman in Texas locking her child in the trunk of her car to escape his infection. How about a university in Manchester, England, barricading its students into their halls of residence and a mayor in New York gagging the city's toddlers for months? The point being fueled by fear we breached our species' most basic social compact to protect our young, abandoning at so many touch points our posts as guardians and often even pushing children into harm's way mentally and physically in order to save ourselves. And worst of all, drunk on our diet of fear, we taught children that they were vectors, silent spreaders, reservoirs of infection, posing a danger to the adults around them. In fact, they link to the example of one Michigan university, one professor in a university in Michigan telling his students, you people are just vectors of disease to me and I don't want to be anywhere near you. So keep your effing distance. Wow. Some irrational times. Well, they explore what uh, what this fear has done and is doing to our children. And they say it's it's time for parents to remember that for two years, we've shattered the myth that our children are resilient, that they can take whatever trampling adults seem or see fit to dole out in the name of fear. We've also shattered the myth that our society can take it. And the conclusion is it can't. We can't. And so they say for the sake of our children and their children, adults must now reject the shackles of fear. It's an excellent article, and I don't know, you know, this, maybe maybe you're feeling a little bit fearful just because of some of the stuff I'm sharing with you on this program. That's never my goal to make you feel either more fearful or make you feel angry. 
but there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. But I, I think Molly Kingsley and Liz Cole definitely have a great take on this generation of children raised by fear. We've got to change course here. All right, now I'm going to shift gears to something a little bit more positive. Great essay from Paul Rosenberg. Paul Rosenberg says, you know, the moral energy we bring to each day is precious, it's finite. That's why we have to take care that we're not tricked into throwing it away on things that don't really matter. So this is an essay of his called The Dispersion of Moral Energies. Check this out. He says, humans have long been and remain deeply attached to morality. Even confirmed criminals, for example, routinely say things like, that ain't right, which is purely a moral judgment. Now, this focus on morality holds firm across the panorama of human life. Examine any workplace and you'll find a long stream of moral judgments. He didn't treat me right. She's arrogant. That's a man you can respect, and so on. He says the moral focus of ours is a good thing, and it says a good deal about us. But there are downsides since our species still has a lot of development left in front of it. In particular, Paul Rosenberg says humans have learned to recast moral concerns as moral judgments, binary determinations of right, wrong, good, evil, and so on. And he says we're far too fast to seize upon such conclusions and then argue about degrees of wrongness. In fact, he says frequently we listen to an argument only long enough to find some reason for a moral judgment, then we close our ears, declaring that the other person is a fill-in-the-blank. Worst of all, this relates to abstracts. Rather than centering on the actual damage done by someone, we prefer saying, he's a liar, or a fraudster, or so on. Notice these are conclusions, names for things, rather than real things. We leap to judgmental conclusions rather than examining direct benefits or harms. Over time, he says, we can become, as Ben Hecht noted in A Child of the Century, they are unable to think except in homage to other thoughts. So Paul Rosenberg says, what we've described above is a misuse of our moral impulses, turning them into weapons that we wield at each other. If we focused on actual benefits and harms and on what each of us actually needs, we could solve most of our problems far easier and with far less animus. That, however, is not dispersion. That's misuse. Dispersion is different. And he says, that's what I want to explain today. Humans have limited amounts of energy, and that includes energies for willpower, and moral concern. Spread them out wisely, and there's simply not enough fuel to sustain them. And this is precisely what's been happening to us, and especially to people who spend time on outrage-centered social media. I says, I'm going to have to be blunt to make my point here, but it's an important point. There are large systems in this world that can endure only if insulated from moral scrutiny. There are many ways that's accomplished, of course, but he says that what I'm focusing on today, the dispersion of moral energies, is a central one, and it's one that isn't well understood. So here's a very basic statement of fact. People and systems that would lose legitimacy if compared to clear moral standards like the golden rule need to redirect the moral energies of the populace into non-threatening directions. Does that make sense? If, if what you want requires that people don't turn a moral eye toward you, It's best to spread their moral energies every which way so they don't have much left in reserve. The internal energies of a mainstream couple, for example, are almost fully directed away from serious moral issues. 
This couple likely devotes their emotional and moral strength toward harmless diversions to whatever terror is in the news that day, to sports teams, to hating one or the other political party, to complaining about all the small moral failures they saw that day, and so on. These are dispersions of moral energy from which little or no civilizational improvement results. So to understand the power of this, he says, spend a moment of meditation on the opening image of this post, which he says I've reproduced in a larger form below. And it's a king standing there on a balcony overlooking his subjects. And they're gathered with pitchforks and torches. Ooh, they look angry. And the king's advisor says, oh, you don't, need to con- you don't need to fight them. You just need to convince the pitchfork people that the torch people want to take away their pitchforks. He says, it's important to understand that we, all humans, as best I can tell, were born with vulnerability to these things. We are, to put it simply, easy marks for anyone who uses our attachment to morality as a tool. And we need to recognize this. Our moral energies are precious. We need to use them where they really matter and not be tricked into throwing them every which way and especially not at each other as pawns in someone else's game. I know that's, that's kind of a deep thought, but I think he's absolutely on target here. If you're Moral energy is being spent trying to find and point out everybody else who's wrong. Well, you see that person and, and, you know, finding new and creative ways to condemn them. That may not be the best use of your moral agency and your moral energy. Now, I, some are going to disagree with me on this, and I, I'm, I'm okay with that. But I think politics is probably one of the biggest reasons why we see people so hyper-focused on just looking for any reason they can say, ha! Gotcha. When they see an opponent or someone who holds an opposing political view, you don't make a mistake. Twitter can be particularly toxic in this regard. Actually, most social media can. Save your moral energies for things that actually matter. What that means to me, at least in my interpretation, is put that energy to work in areas that actually matter. That would mean areas other than just politics. That would mean things like family and church and business and community, maybe in education, perhaps in media. This is what I'm trying to do. Government is, you know, in politics, they're going to be there. They're going to be a factor, but they don't have to be the most important factor in our lives. And I think we're all happier once we figure that out. This is The Brian Hyde Show.